Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the battlefront, north, south and east. We dig into the composition and tactics of the Ukrainian army, and we ask why Russia has resorted to buying millions of artillery shells and rockets from North Korea. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 7th of September, day 196. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dom Nichols and our Assistant Comment Editor, Francis Durnley. I started by asking Dom, for his thoughts on the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been very busy, as you say, particularly in the east. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But let me deal with the south. So the Kurzon front is still very, very active. There's reports of the Ukrainian push down there still continuing, having some measures of success, but also it looks like they have been blunted in some areas. Now, this is to be expected, as we as we think this is a sort of four-pronged push in the south, the two roads from Mykolaiv to, uh, to Kherson City itself, one going direct and one long, along the coastline, and then another route down through the sort of Inlet's River in the centre of that, of that pocket, and then one further to the east. So what we thought they were doing was, was, was testing, seeing where the opposition was strongest, and then trying to, to reinforce those areas where the opposition is weakest. So, of course, there's going to be some reversals in that and some, uh, some repulsed uh, attacks. That seems to be what we are, what we are seeing there. Um, further to the east, now, this, we talked about it yesterday, and to be perfectly honest, we're not entirely sure what is happening because there's, there's scant information coming out. The uh, Ukrainian leadership is still very much... Uh, keen on or have, have imposed a, a news not a news blackout is too is too strong but they are they are not allowing the the free flow of of press accredited press in the in the area as has been in the earlier earlier months in the war anyone anyone trying to uh, to get in there to report is at risk of losing their accreditation so we're not uh, we're not getting a lot of uh, free voices or a lot of uh, a lot of freelance voices or accredited journalists out of there, but it seems that the town of uh, Balaklia and please apologies as always for my uh, for my pronunciation uh, seems to have been overtaken by Ukrainian forces. Now this was a previously Russian held town about forty odd miles southeast of uh, Kharkiv. It's just west. It's um, about 10, 10 miles, 15 k's-ish, 16 k's to the west of the main road running out of Kharkiv, running sort of southeast into Izium and then on to Slovyansk. It, it seems as if that has been taken by a Ukrainian push. This is largely coming from Russian, <coughs> excuse me, Russian telegram channels um, with, with some uh, backed up in some areas by by uh, video and photographic evidence that we th- we think is accurate and um, and date worthy, i.e. it's it's from from you know the last 24 hours rather than months ago but but as i say you've got to take everything with a pinch of salt here but it looks as if the town of balaclia has been taken by uh, by ukrainian forces um there are reports that russian reserves have had to be pushed into uh, shevenkoya which is further along uh, is is across that road across that main road from kharkiv down to slovyansk and further on that axis if you went from balaklia and, and headed northeast which it looks like the the axis of advance from from ukraine then um sevenkoya is uh, is about 20 or 30 k's along along there so if russian reserves have had to be deployed in that area then it, it looks as if that certainly something is happening and it looks as if there has been a there has been a breakthrough um, a breakthrough there, so we're not entirely sure what's what's happened there. Um, again, a lot of Russian Telegram channels, so you've got to got to take this with 
with a pinch of salt, but there's a number of different reports all sort of saying the same thing. That they were they were subjected to a very a very sort of sudden assault. Um, they don't use the term combined arms, but I mean that's what happened. Combined arms being the integral knitting together of of infantry and tanks and artillery and engineer support and electronic warfare and all the rest of the whole all, all the parts of the orchestra working together. It does seem as if that has had some measure of success. And it looks as if the the speed of the advance breaking through what we think was defended by the um, the, the sort of reservists, if you like, or the, the Luhansk self-proclaimed Luhansk People's uh, Republic forces, uh, they are they they've just not been able to. They are not of the caliber. They don't have the weapons of the caliber or the training to to repulse a a proper. A well, well-supported, well-coordinated attack with, led by infantry and and armor, and it looks as if it, there's comments about the speed of the advance meant that Russian artillery was then was was just out of date. By the time it had it had been able to range in on a target, they were they were gone. There were another couple of k's up the road. So it looks as if artillery has largely been um, nullified by the speed of the advance, and it looks as if that advance does seem to be having quite some success uh, in the uh, in the area. Now. What what does that mean? We spoke yesterday about um, about whether or not you know where, where's the deception, where's the where's the feint? Um, can Ukraine afford, in terms of personnel and equipment, to push on all fronts in the in the north and, and in the Donbass and uh, and in southern Kherson? We we thought that was not the case. Um, so is this uh, is this an opportunistic push? Now the Kiev Independent media outlet is, is quoting the Institute for the Study of War, a US-based think tank, saying that this push is a likely opportunistic effort or is a likely opportunistic effort enabled by the redeployment of Russian forces to the south. Now, that that seems plausible, seems logical. My only caveat there is that, that I, I, I look at the, the ISW, Institute for, Strategia, Institute for the Study of War, recommend other people do as well. Um, they're a credible outlet for information. I've not seen that report that Kiev Independent are quoting. So, again... The pinch of salt all over the place. I'm getting surrounded by salt here. However, another um, bizarrely uh, credible, I say bizarrely uh, because we're talking about Igor Gherkin here, who's the, the former FSB guy, the, the Russian intelligence agent, um, former military leader of the Donetsk, or, you know, again, self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic. Um, he has talked about this rapid uh, advance led by infantry and armour and, and talked about the the inability of the defenders there to to muster a, a, a strong enough defence, both at the first and the second line. Um, and he also made the comment about uh, about artillery. Now, as our friend and colleague Roland Oliphant mentioned the other day, when we were discussing, well, how 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 much can we can we rely on these kind of channels? Igor Gherkin is in in that kind of bracket that he's he's so he's such an ultra nationalist for Russia. He's so in support of this this endeavour that he does. He is quite vocal on calling out Russia when they when they make mistakes, when they're not when they're not progressing fast enough and eliminating Nazis left, right, and centre. He calls them out. So um, we actually get quite a lot of information that subsequently turns out to be accurate from his his uh, his channel. Um, and long may long may he continue. So something is definitely happening there in in the east. Whether or not it's opportunistic or whether or not it is it is a planned advance, um, the ultimate aim could be if, if they progress there to, to the east and southeast of Kharkiv, that will cut the supply lines coming down from Russia, Russia itself, down into the Donbass. So um, combine that with the push in the Donbass, um, this, this could be a front to, to stymie Russian, uh, Russian ambition in the Donbass. Of course, I know the aims keep changing, but, but Putin's latest claim is that this, this war is all about liberating, in his words, the Donbass. So they've got to keep going. They, ha- they cannot afford to, to not take the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. They've got to take the Donbass. So if this, if this effort around Kharkiv, knitting together with the thing that's happening in the Donbass that we talked about yesterday, this very, very odd, sort of very limited counterattack in, a, in an area crossing the Severi Donetsk River... If this is all part of severing those logistic links down into the Donbass, then that that will um, that will severely impact one of Russia's stated aims. And just to finish off there, <clears throat> excuse me, today's UK Defence Intelligence report, which again, you know, I, you can accuse me of just just spouting propaganda from the Ministry of Defence, <clears throat> but it does seem to be fairly credible. Um, they're saying that multiple concurrent threats spread across 500 kilometres will test Russia's ability to coordinate operational design and reallocate resources across multiple groupings of forces. Earlier in the war, Russia's failure to do this was one of the underlying reasons for the military's poor performance. So a little bit wonkish, but when it talks about operational design, it means <clears throat> it means big picture stuff. It means where do you put your 
your major forces? Where do you where do you hold? Where do you push? Where do you defend? How do you allocate limited resources against uh, multiple competing demands? And they've not shown themselves, Russia have not shown themselves very good at doing that at, at a ground level. Reallocating resources across multiple um, groupings of forces across a 500 kilometer front is a is a very tricky thing to do. And they've not shown, as I said, not shown great ability to do that in the past. So I think that's a fairly credible report there from UK Defence Intelligence. And it all suggests that there are there are two big pushes now uh, from Ukraine in the south around Kherson and in the, the uh, north slash east, all impacting the Donbass. Whether they've got the the military power, the military means to, to do both um, as they should do, you know, fully supported with a with a back a very coherent logistical plan, amateurs do tactics, professional do logistics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Unless they've got all that, then then one of those things has to give. And we spoke yesterday about about where's the main attack, which one's the which one's the deception. Um, Jury still out on that completely. I'm happy to flick flack so, so we cover all bases and get it right. Um, but I, I genuinely don't know. Genuinely don't know at the moment. But there does seem to be Ukrainian advance both in the south, very very limited, a lot of hard fighting, but also this sudden this sudden thrust, this sudden push um, from the southeast of Kharkiv, southeast of Kharkiv, in a north northeasterly direction. Um, I think I better pause there. Before we'll grab our compasses and try and work out which way is up. Thanks, Dom. Um, that was incredibly comprehensive and I think has given us a very good um, understanding of what's happening across Ukraine from the south to the north. Um, we'll come back to you later because I've got some questions on the fighting itself and I'd, I'd like us to spend some time thinking about how uh, the Ukrainians might fight given their training from Western powers. But before that, let's go to Francis Sterney. Francis, welcome back. Um, what other updates outside of the actual fighting have you got for us today? Well, thank you, David. Good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to be back after a couple of days' absence. I've actually just left watching uh, Prime Minister's questions on the television here at Telegraph Towers. Um, Now, for the benefit of our foreign listeners, um, Prime Minister's questions is when, once a week, the sitting Prime Minister takes questions uh, from members of Parliament of all political persuasions, and it's effectively... A, a wonderful, spectacle carnival of democracy in action where, uh, as I say, members of parliament are scrutinising the legislative agenda of the government and can ask questions on the highest scale of policy, you know, whether it be war in Ukraine or, or on the economy and the cost of living crisis, down to uh, a leisure centre in, uh, in their constituency. So, one of the, the sort of most curious features of British politics, but again, one of the, I think, best features about it is is that you really get the sense of, of what is on the agenda on any given week. And so in that half an hour, it's also an opportunity to measure the strength of the prime minister. And of course, we have a new prime minister in Liz Truss, who took over yesterday. I mean, can you imagine taking over in a new job and then on the first day in, in that new job, having to face questions, hostile questions um, for, for 35 minutes um, from from those who are trying to uh, to trip you up? It's, it's no mean feat. And um she did a pretty good job of it, I think it's it's fair to say. I mean, I'm not saying that in an ideological sense. I mean, just purely she didn't make any big mistakes. She batted off a lot of criticism. She got a few um, laughs from her, um, from her fellow MPs. And um, generally speaking, was um, uh, pretty robust on her agenda, which, of course, includes tackling the cost of living crisis, but also remaining robust on Ukraine. And indeed, it was noteworthy, I think, to see that she was wearing a Ukraine-British flag brooch, um, sort of uh, the two flags alongside each other. And she did speak about Putin's war and her resilience and, and, and strength on that issue. She also, of course, spoke to President Zelensky last night and was the first foreign leader to do so. So I think it's clear that she remains as strong on this issue as Prime Minister, as she was as Foreign Secretary. It's um, We've got a piece in the paper coming up tomorrow, and indeed it's being written as we speak by uh, Con Coughlin, who's our regular defence columnist, who is going to do a little deep dive into Liz Truss's time as Foreign Secretary and indeed her successor, James Cleverley, and analysing what they're likely to do in the coming days and weeks ahead. 
he makes the point, which I think is accurate, is that at this moment, I think it's fair to say that Russia is on the back foot and her instincts as foreign secretary echoed of course by Boris Johnson have been proven correct about the way to respond to Putin's aggression and invasion of Ukraine and indeed he's going to go on to argue that this is her moment to ensure that Putin is defeated perhaps even for good in Ukraine because at the moment there are still dangers of course in the United States whilst they remain still very robust on the issue of Ukraine we are about to enter the midterms and the focus will inevitably enter domestic affairs as opposed to foreign affairs across the pond not only that in European countries I've spoken to many times on this podcast there is uh, I think less clarity on their on some commitments from certain countries and so there is a real vacuum that is that is to be filled i think by a, another prime minister british prime minister to be as strong as boris johnson was on these issues and to counter the so-called geopolitical realists those who think that um war can never be won and thus peace is has to be the goal in the short term and that the cost of living crisis isn't worth the cost of um of of, of ukraine's freedom and that there's an opportunity here for, for that argument really to be made as passionately and robustly um as boris johnson was making it not only now but in the months ahead so a very interesting first Prime Minister's questions, the first day in office for Liz Truss, and no doubt she'll have a lot more to say on Ukraine in the coming days. Absolutely. Thank you, Francis. I would say to our listeners, different opinions on the entertainment value of PMQs are are available, but why don't you go and watch yourself and let us know what you think next uh, week. Also, very quickly as well, we often encourage our listeners to write in with ideas, uh, suggestions and critiques. uh, we know lots of our listeners are based in the United States, so if you would be, I'd be very interested to hear from from you how um, the 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 Ukraine invasion is is starting to play in the midterms. What are what are politicians saying? What are what are the public thinking about it? And how is public opinion shifting or staying the same? So if if you've seen anything in the, in the states, do let us know. We'd be very very curious to hear. Um, it was a big day for Liz Trust. It was also a big day for Vladimir Putin. He was at the uh, Eastern Economic Forum, a sort of Davos, a sort of Davos style uh, um, uh, forum in in the east of Russia in Vladivostok. He gave, he said quite a few things, Francis. Could, and I think it'd be useful to dwell on it because what he says is potentially indicative of how Russian leadership are thinking about the war and certainly what they might be concerned about and the image they're trying to project. So, could you just talk to us a little bit about what Vladimir Putin said and what we can say from that? Sure, yes. Well, I apologise to our listeners if I was rather overexcited about Prime Minister's questions. I did used to work in Parliament for three and a half years, so this is the sort of thing that gets me all very overexcited. But yes, on Putin, um, it was, as you say, a significant 24 hours. He's denied, remarkably, uh, using energy as a weapon um, uh, during the uh, <laughs> in, in, during the Ukraine war. He says, and I quote, they say, of course, he's alluding here to the Western powers, that Russia uses energy as a weapon. More nonsense. What the weapon do we use? We supply as much as required according to requests from importers. That's what he told uh, the economic uh, forum that David was just talking about. Now, of course, we know that this is not true because there is inevitably as a consequence of Europe being reliant on Russian energy, there has been more of a demand than Russia has been willing to give in recent weeks with the closure of these key pipelines. Uh, And yet, it is clearly a deliberate policy on the half of the Kremlin to uh, to strangle Europe. It's not about what Europe is demanding. It is about what it is willing to offer. Um, Russia is willing to offer Europe. And uh, so I think we should uh, take that. Uh, Don was talking earlier on about taking things with a pinch of salt. Well, I think this, should, this requires a full handful of salt, frankly, um, if you're to believe what Putin is saying here. He says, and remarkably, he also said, give us a turbine and we will turn Nord Stream on tomorrow. Now, we've throughout this crisis have been saying on this podcast that this is almost certainly going to be Putin's line, that he would dangle the carrot of solving the cost of living crisis, solving the energy crisis um, overnight 
if sanctions on Russia were relinquished. And that indeed is exactly what he is doing here. He's putting on a facade of strength at a time of real vulnerability, not only militarily, but economically in Russia. And an attempt to basically say that you're about to have it really bad in Europe. And it doesn't have to be this way. I'm fine. My economy is robust. We've, we've, um, we've ridden the wave, as it were. And all you need to do is, is end this Give me what I want, which is uh, control over the pace and duration of the Ukraine war and certain assurances, and it can all be over tomorrow. Um, But as I say, I think we need to be very questioning of this narrative being put forward by Putin on so many fronts, but not least the fact about this economic strength provided uh, of of the Russian economy at present, which, as I've talked about many times on the podcast, is highly, highly questionable. It's the illusion of strength that is effectively achieved through the dark arts and machinations um, behind closed doors, which will not be sustainable in the long term. So that's what he made uh, his remarks about on the energy front. He also talked generally about the West's sanctions, calling them short-sighted and a danger for the entire world. Again, saying that the threat of uh, economic fragility in Europe is a consequence of Western decision-making as opposed to Russian ones. He said that the sanctions have replaced the COVID-19 pandemic as the main threat to the global economy. And I'll quote him in full here. I'm speaking of the West sanctions fever with its brazen, aggressive attempt to impose models of behaviour on other countries, to deprive them of their sovereignty and subordinate them of their to their will. Now it's fascinating again this because what he's attempting to do is use the critics of Western countries, Western civilization, one might say, using their attack lines um, uh, himself. So this idea of of it being Russia that's taking away sovereignty from Ukraine. No, no, it's it's Western powers that are taking away sovereignty from from other nations by trying to impose their economic will on them. Uh, and also talk about their aggression. Look at this language. It's the same. It's the same language that we've been using about Putin. He's trying to mirror it back, but in a way that plays to certain other narratives that are within the Western world around cultural imperialism, um, Western arrogance, all of these kind of things. Um, he also said that irreversible and even tectonic changes have taken place throughout international relations. The role of dynamic, promising countries and regions of the world, primarily the Asia-Pacific region, have significantly increased. So again, he's trying to say that I don't really need to think about Europe long term. My eyes are on the Asia-Pacific and on the emerging economies, which again is what we knew that he would do because those countries have been more receptive to his uh, narrative around the Ukraine war, but also are dependent more on Russian uh, energy and weapons. So naturally, they have not been able to criticise him as much. And as a consequence, he is now saying that they will be uh, his uh, main focus of attention in the long term. And again, we've predicted this on the podcast that inevitably he would be forced to turn to the emerging economies. And the challenge now for the West is going to be to win them back. Thanks for that, Francis. Um, Dom, I know you had one quick point to make about the some of the body language you saw in, in, in these images emerging from this conference. Uh, well, very quickly, no, not so much that conference, but the Vostok 2022, the East 2022 military drills that are happening in uh, in Russia at the moment with Russia, China, Syria forces, Laos. I think we've got some forces there. The big military drills. Um, it's on our website. Joe Barnes has written a piece about it. There's a bit of film. But, but just in it, you see uh, Putin and... Um, uh, Gerasimov, the head of Russia's armed forces, and they're later joined by Sergei Shoigu, the defence minister. They're all there, all watching, watching the, uh, the the military drills. But the the body language there is absolutely excruciating. They don't talk to each other. They just they just it's awful. I mean, if ever there was a a way of saying that they're not, they're just not. They don't like being in each other's company. Then that that's that's it. Now, I, okay, they're quite. I'm not trying to make too much of this. They're, they're quite stunted. These um, these occasions, anyway. We've seen. Um, We've seen Putin do a sort of school headmaster type affair with um, with Shoigu before, but it it is quite telling. It's just something that we don't see 
uh, elsewhere. I mean, you normally kind of acknowledge your defence minister when he walks in the room, you know, maybe even give him a smile, I doubt it. But uh, yeah, so Joe Barnes has written about that. Um, I just saw this quite an interesting count- counterpoint to this to give the, in terms of imagery, what it means and, and trying to sort of sell yourself to the world. Thanks for that. Um, Dom, let's move away from the Far East, come back to Europe. Uh, there's been some updates from uh, the EU in response to some of the questions uh, emerging over energy. Francis, can you talk us through them? Yes, well, the European Commission has today proposed a further €5 billion Euros in micro, macro, sorry, mustn't confuse those two, macro financial assistance loans to Ukraine as the second part of its exceptional package of up to €9 billion, Euros, which was announced back in May, I believe, I think it was the 18th of May, um, and endorsed by the European Council on the 23rd, 24th of June. So, Again, these are the kind of things that don't really pick up much attention, but are of huge significance. Without this kind of financial support, then Ukraine would be in a really, well, um, unsalvageable economic situation. And the fact that the EU is continuing to to uh, to, to provide this financial support um, is really, really important in enabling Ukraine's capacity to fight. Now, on the energy point, we're just talking about energy. The EU is also drawing up plans for an EU cap of €200, that's about £173 per megawatt hour on the price of electricity from generators that do not run on gas. Now, that's according to a draft that's been seen by Reuters, the news agency. So clearly they're drafting emergency measures here to pull down the gas and electricity costs that are expected to rocket this winter. And they... By putting a price cap on Russian gas, they're hoping that on the one hand, this will help alleviate the cost of living crisis on how much individuals are paying. But also it will ensure that Putin is not able to continue to profit as insanely as he has been able to do, or at least by the extreme margins that he has been able to um, in the long term. Because the demand of energy has been higher, even though less of it is being purchased, because of the cost price has gone up, he is still making exorbitant profits. And so Ursula von der Leyen, of course, is the European Commission president, has said, we will propose a price cap on Russian gas, on Russian gas. We must cut Russia's revenues, which Putin uses to finance this atrocious war in Ukraine. So again, um, a robust response from the EU that echoes many others that are taking place around the world at present. Just one other thing whilst talking about this in relation to the EU is that Hungary which, of course, we've talked about at length in the past as perhaps, well, almost certainly the strongest uh, ally that Russia has within the European Union. Hungary has backed down in its threat to veto the next rollover of Russian sanctions on September the 15th. So they were threatening to do that because of the ongoing crisis, but they have said that, no, they will continue to support Russian sanctions for now, um, Budfest said that they would raise the issue again for the next rollover, which is due, I think, in November, December time. So uh, clearly, for now, the line is holding within the European Union on on sanctioning Russia. But will that remain robust in the long term, particularly if Hungary is wobbling come November, December time? It's too early to say. But the fact that they've been managed to be kept on side at this moment, I think, is significant. Thanks, Francis. There's just um, one more thing I think we should talk about. And uh, see, see, I mean, don't know how much we need to talk about it, but we'll see we'll see what analysis we can come up. Uh, There's a story that Russia has resorted to buying millions of artillery shells and rockets from North Korea. Um, can we talk a little bit about this? What does this what might this show us about the Russian armed forces? Well, I think it very simply, it speaks to two things. The first is it speaks to the desperation that it is requiring to being required to purchase weaponry from a, another state, which is never a great look when you're seeing yourself as a foremost military power. But second, it speaks to what we've spoken about again on the part in the past on this podcast, which is that Russia is desperate for allies. And indeed, North Korea is one of the very, very few that has answered the call, as it were, that is willing to deal with Russia. And so you know these things are always in in when when 
one is publicly talking about supporting another country, it's usually not only because it's beneficial for that country, but of course it's also beneficial for you. And this is of huge significance, of course, for North Korea. It requires support from countries like Russia to be remain economically solvent. Most of its support comes from China, but some of it comes from um, Russia. But also it's they will ne- inevitably have agreed and signed off to this being public knowledge and they deem that being beneficial, that this is them making it clear which side that they're on in this sort of new emerging Cold War between autocratic and democratic um, spheres of influence, if one can articulate it in that way. And and I think it's, as I say, it's significant for those two main reasons, but also just generally for, I think, speaking to the desperate, desperate situation that, that Russia is in at this moment, um, because it would not be wanting to. If you'd said at the beginning of this war that they would have to be resorting to, to, to North Korea as one of their central military allies, then I think that they would have been horrified at that notion. Russia likes to see itself as a global power, one with reach and influence. And if all you can summon really to your support is North Korea, it's not the look that you would want to go for. Now, more positively for Russia, I think it has to be said, is what they've managed to achieve in there being the first large-scale war games involving China and other Kremlin-friendly allies, which took place yesterday um, Putin was there. He flew to Vladivostok uh, for the live fire exercise in the Sea of Japan. He was joined by Sergei Shoigu, who we've spoken about at length, which is, in itself is interesting because the talk was that he'd been sidelined. So it would appear that, that this is a sort of show of at least a facade of a show of strength. Um, uh, and they were watching the, the, the war games take place. Now, As I say, this is good for Russia in the sense that China agreed to take part. Um, So did India as well, Syria. Um, And uh, and yet at the same time, I think perhaps we shouldn't completely overestimate the significance of this. This had been in the calendar for quite some time. It's one of those things that perhaps, uh, you know, would be quite difficult for for China to uh, to roll back on considering what's been going on with Taiwan and they clearly want to send a signal to the world that they could still be more closely aligned with uh, Russia um, but I think that reading this as some commentators are online as being a mark of you know World War three ex- preparatory exercises is way off the mark these kind of war games take place um, relatively often but nonetheless I think Russia will be pleased that they have gone ahead and we know as well that uh, Putin will be meeting the uh, Chinese premier next week in Uzbekistan that's been confirmed by both channels and so that is again something that I think Putin will see as a diplomatic win that he's gone from being a complete pariah early on in this conflict to now being somebody who at the very least people are willing to to be seen with in public although as I say the degrees to which they're actually willing to support him, I think, remains to be seen. Thanks, Francis. Um, Tom, do you want to add anything on to this? Well, the only thing I'd add is that in terms of sourcing military hardware from from abroad, it's uh, unless they're doing it very, very quietly, and I think we would have we would have found out. It seems like China is is being very cool in this regard, really not not stepping forward, um, particularly in the area of microprocessors. And we know that Russia is losing a lot of or using a lot of uh, precision guided munitions, and and uh, and is suffering from a lack of very sophisticated technology that it's trying to source from from around the world. So um, just surprising that yeah, China China is sort of notable by its absence, I would say, when it comes to uh, to lending overt military support to uh, to Russia. Thank you very much, Dom, and thank you, Francis. Uh, just one more question I quite like to talk about a little bit, and I, and I sort of do realise it's quite speculative. But as we've been talking earlier on today and yesterday in this podcast, it's often very difficult to know what's going on on the front lines. Information comes either not at all or very, very fast, and we have to spend a little bit of time sifting through it to work out what's what we can verify and what we can't. Um, Dom, I was talking to you earlier about... Um, considering that we know that lots of the Ukrainian army have been trained by NATO powers or Western powers, c- can we, could, we, could you sketch out for us how they, how they might fight? What would the battle look like with the Ukrainians going forward from what we know about their training? Yeah, OK, well, um, I'll try and keep it brief. So the way we try and do it in the West is we go for the, the, the phrase you would have heard me use 
a number of times, combined arms manoeuvre. So you have little packets of infantry and tanks and, let's say, engineers and some signalers and some intelligence and artillery, electronic warfare, uh, logisticians, etc., etc., all working together. Now, it's, it's tricky. Okay? The mil- military business is, is fairly tricky. It's a, tr- it's a tricky game. So mastering your own skill set, if you're a tank driver or if you are a gunner in the, in the artillery or, or anything else, you know, just mastering your own trade uh, takes, takes a while. To then be asked to make sure you know a sufficient amount, which is quite a lot, of, of, your, of your cousins next door so that you can work seamlessly together. Well, that's, that's an even bigger ask. And then to do it in contact with the enemy in, a, in the chaotic um, nature of the battlefield where information is scarce and you don't know what's going on and you're scared and all the rest of it. So working together is, is quite tricky. But if you have these small building blocks, let's just say you've got a building block of, of four things, so infantry, tanks, um, artillery, and engineers. So you've got those, those four building blocks. Well, when that, that little blob of combat power meets another identical blob of combat power, they can work together much quicker um, because they already know how to work with each other. And then this other force that they've come up against, th- these other friends, um, are just sort of more of the same. So, so you can actually knit st- things together much quicker in that kind of mould. Now, the, the Russian way of doing things from, from the Soviet era was was to be deep specialists in their own areas and not not particularly work together. I mean, I'm, there's no absolutes in this, of course, but but ra- the, the tanks would generally work on their own, and then the um, then the, the the sort of APCs, the armored personnel carriers, would come in and and throw the troops around and what have you. But they would they were largely um, stovepipes of excellence, if if you like to think of it in that way. They weren't very good at working together, and hence when from Russia's point of view, friendly forces met up. They couldn't then just seamlessly immediately all work together and, and head off to glory because they, they just didn't have this culture of, of working together seamlessly and understanding the limitations. I mean, some, literally the limitations of the speed of the vehicles, for example. We would, um, I used to work in <coughs> Chieftain a very long time ago, and we would, go, uh, we would be alongside um, our infantry buddies in the, in the Warriors, and Warrior being a, being a modern, well, then a modern vehicle, and Chieftain, not so modern, um, the Warriors would outrun us. So as we were leaving the, the sort of start line for an attack on a position, um, we, the Warriors would have to, give, they'd have to have a head start, or we'd have to have a bit of a head start. So we, so we arrived sort of in the close contact battle, that sort of, I don't guess, 600 metres and, and closer, um, at about the same time. So you weren't, you weren't all over the place. So simply knitting things together like that, you have to understand how each other's operating, understand how long it takes to, to bring a, an artillery piece into action, for example, so that you know that even if you're exploiting um, uh, a successful move on a position, you know, if, if you think, well, of course, the artillery will fire us into the next position in the next assault. Well, they might not be able to because they they take time to bring into action or to move. So you've got to have an understanding of your of of what's the left and right and, and in front and behind you. And I think we do that in the in the in the or we train for it at least far better than the than the Russian doctrine teaches. Um, now Ukraine somewhere somewhere in the middle. It's sort of a lot of the old guard brought up on those old models, those kind of the post Soviet era doctrine, and they are having to change both the natures of their ammunition they're sort of shifting from 152 millimeter artillery to 155 that doesn't doesn't sound a hell of a lot but but actually you know it's quite, these are all different natures of equipment all with their own logistic trails all with their own sort of um ways of being supported so so to shift your military doctrine from one method to another one mode to another one model if you like that's the word i'm increasingly poorly scrambling for um is is hard now, and add to that, Ukraine are doing it in contact with the enemy. So it's it's very, very difficult to do. But if you are able to master it, and I'm not suggesting we in, in Britain have mastered it yet, but I think we're further down the line in Russia. If you are better able at, at inculcating in your military forces this understanding that you are going to come across other friendly forces and you're going to have to see or the quicker you can you can integrate and work together then the faster you can have an effect on the enemy um if you can inculcate that that kind of idea and that mode of thinking then that is a, that is that allows a higher tempo of operations and hopefully more more success and you only get that by practicing from a very very low level um and and a lot of this comes down to the basic educational achievements of the of the raw material you're dealing with the people who are going into the military um if they are not 
if the, if the education system of your state is not such that they are they are able to take on board these ideas um, and and learn them and and, and really inhabit these these um, modes of working, then it's all it's even harder. So it's just just two different models there. Um, now what we seem to be seeing from Ukraine is that they, obviously they're, they're, I mean they are a much smaller force, but they are working um, better as teams. They are. They are better able to devolve decision making. So rather than having to wait for for the general to decide what's going to happen next, it's um, those those kind of decisions are, are pushed right down the chain, and uh, and it's the commander um, at an appropriate level. Question: Where is the appropriate level? I mean, that's what military forces have been trying to decide since uh, since the Greek Spartan War, I guess. But you know, where is that decision? But but people at much lower levels are able to decide. This is the this is a threat. This is a new scenario. This this has just happened. That's that's completely wiped out all the fundamentals of the uh, of the t- decisions that have gone into doing what we're doing now. I need to react to that. Quick quick bit of thinking. Quick bit of planning. This is what we're going to do before, uh, or, or instead of having to put that kind of the new facts back up the chain of command. And radios might be might not be as good as you'd hope. Wait for a decision from on high to come down. So. So the, the the Western model of of operating allows for um, it, what it might lack in punch because you don't you don't have a company of ten T seventy twos all just just whacking through a gap in the woods. You know you're working with other with other forces. It allows for a much more nimble, much more um, coordinated attack, and then you're better able to exploit success and also re- react to surprises if need be. Well, thank you so much for that, Tom. I thought that was really informative. I've just got one more question sort of around this. Um, as we know, it's very difficult. You know, we, we, we get these reports in. They come from different Telegram channels and different people on the ground who sort of feed information back and we have to go off and verify it. And we're, we're operating often without a lot of information. But just for our listeners, what kind of signs should they be listening out for that uh, and the Ukrainian offensive might be going particularly well or stalling? You know, what, what kind of reports might we start seeing? Well, keep your eyes on the on the push in around Kharkiv because this is either either taking advantage of of an opportunity and the that's great you know we, we like opportunity and if you can as I've just said if your forces are better able to quickly respond to a change in circumstances and push through a gap that suddenly appeared or that you found um, that's fine but how far do you go because you also have a logistic tail and if you leave yourself exposed as you saw with Russia in the opening days of the war the um, the Ukrainians were very uh, very good at allowing the um, having the confidence to allow the tanks to go past and then hitting the logistic tail behind them. Well, I mean, that might happen to Ukraine. If they are pushing um, to the northeast of Balaklaya and they are, they, I've mangled them. I'm so sorry for the names here. But if they are pushing past that road um, that links Kharkiv down to Slovyansk and they are pushing in a northeastly direction, then they, 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 they will culminate. As we said before, culmination is the point at which you, um, you're not retreating, but you can no longer take, make, make a, any further advance. You just need to rest, basically, refuel the vehicles, refuel the people, um, have a bit of a think about what's going on, so on and so forth. You can no longer take part in offensive action. Um, so th- there comes a point, you ha- you know, this is part of the military judgment. How far do you go until you say stop and, and, and reconstitute? Um, do, you, do you keep pushing as far as you can if there's if there's nothing in front of you, but that's that's exposing your tail to uh, it's inviting a strike behind you, or you know do, do you rush on to the next major civic centre, the next major crossroads, the railhead, whatever it may be? There's a great temptation to do that, but that's where the um, that's where this you know, military um, art meets science. I would I would say, um, but yeah. So in the next few days, let, let's see whether this is this is opportunistic this push in the north or whether this actually speaks of a very well supported attack and that's able to able to push on and sever that that logistic line from russia down down to izium if that's the case then i'm going to try and wipe out all our past podcasts and claim that i knew all along that this was the main attack in Kurzon was the uh, was the deception but um, i'll come back to that well, thank you very much um, for that, uh, Dom. I don't know if we can wipe them out. I think they're all there, unfortunately. Um, but if, if, if it's true that they've deceived you as well, then kudos to the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, we're coming to the end of our time today. Uh, Francis, I'm curious. You, you mentioned you, you worked in and about Parliament, in and around Parliament, before coming to join the Telegraph. Did you, just going back to our new Prime Minister, um, obviously our Ukrainian listeners and our foreign listeners potentially feel that they have quite a good knowledge and understanding of Boris, who's a very colourful, very lively character. Um, did you ever meet, did you know Liz Truss at all when you were in Parliament? And if so, can you throw some light for, for our listeners about her character? 
So I knew her team and met her a couple of times. Um, just context of what I used to do. So I used to be the chief of staff for my local MP from home, who was chair of the prime minister's policy board at the time. And that role essentially meant that he served as a conduit for policy ideas from MPs, whether they be in the cabinet or backbenchers, into the number 10 policy unit. It all sounds very fancy, but basically it's a conduit, it's a funnel for ideas from people in parliament into government. And so as a consequence of that, you got to know a lot of other MPs personally, and also, of course, particularly their their teams. A, a standard MP now will usually have a, a team anywhere between the size of four members to eight, usually. So it can be, it can, it can vary. But they, there's, there's all, all of these people have a team behind them. And that's before you even get into those who then have a role in the government, where they'll usually have a whole department and they'll have special advisors, etc. So these things are big operations and there are people who you, you don't see who actually wield a lot more influence than you might expect, but who are sort of working the corridors of Westminster. Um, but from, uh, when I, that, from that time when I was working in Parliament, I got to know her team very well for the simple fact of um, not only the fact that she was obviously very much working in, in the policy space, but also her team were just around the corner um, on the, the, the building that, we, that our office was in. So I got to know her team quite well. I mean, and and I met her at two events, um, as I say, very briefly. One thing I will say is that she's, I think... You know, there's been some criticism of her being a poor communicator, in, and not the, or at least not the most effective public speaker. I wouldn't um, renounce that crit- that criticism, but I would say that um, on one to one basis, she's much much more personable than you might expect. Um, she's very charming. Um, much more smiley, quite fun, actually, I would go as far as to say, um, a bit cheeky. And so I would not be surprised if we see her tenure as Prime Minister as being marked by perhaps stronger relationships with international leaders than many commentators would expect. Because, uh, as I say, I think it's part of her private personality that we see less of but is well known in the corridors of Westminster that she is somebody who who talks to 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 many of her colleagues and 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 is 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 popular is well liked and obviously what speaks to that is the fact that she uh, has been now in the cabinet for a sustained period of time longer than almost anybody else Um, and so she's considered a safe pair of hands and is also considered loyal Um, the other thing I would just say about that you know you, you you get to learn from the from time in parliament is is those who perhaps have a a, a proper ideological underpinning and those who are sort of more instinctive uh, politicians. And what I mean by that is those who could actually articulate why they think what they think in a sort of intellectual manner. And Liz Truss can do that. Indeed, she has done that. She wrote a book called Britannia Unchained, along with now some of her fellow members of her cabinet, uh, talking about how economically to unleash the potential of Britain. But of course, foreign affairs plays into that as well, talking about the role that international trade should play and Britain as a as a sort of a nation that needs to be um, free to do more around the world. And so I think that's the other thing, as I would say, is there's been some criticism of her as being very flaky. And indeed, if you look at her record on certain issues, she's now obviously seeing herself more or marketing herself more as a strong Brexiteer in favour of Brexit, when actually she voted for Remain at the time. I think actually that on policies of economic and domestic affairs, she is more robust than people may actually expect. And indeed, just watching the Prime Minister's questions earlier on, I was quite struck by how she was able to quite convincingly articulate what her economic approach will be, which essentially is all about improving growth. Um, and I won't go into all of that now, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's interesting that she was able to willing to defend that at the dispatch box, whereas a lot of politicians, whenever they get could, are in danger of getting into complicated economic matters, will just try and throw out a gag and move on to the next question. So I think we can expect to see a lot of that. But my last comment would just be that we don't really know the true Liz Truss. I think it's fair to say that she has manoeuvred herself quite sophisticatingly uh, in recent years to be in a position where she could be the future prime minister. And it's the old maxim that you only really know a leader when they actually are fully in command. And who knows, there may well be some surprises um, yet to come about what she actually really 
wants to achieve um, and and her and the manner in which she'll seek to achieve that I think she will um, have one or two tricks up her sleeve put it that way so those are my thoughts David hopefully that answers your question yes thank you very much Francis hopefully that gives our international leaders a bit of a, a bit of a more intimate portrait of the new prime minister it'll certainly be fascinating to see how she interacts with Zelensky because we know that Boris Johnson and, and uh, Vladimir Zelensky had a very close uh, and an obvious friendship so it'd be very interesting to see if that's replicable with Prime Minister Truss I do think however unfortunately we're at the end of our time together today uh, so I'll just ask Dom and Francis for your brief if that's okay your final thoughts uh, Dom and Nichols first please Sure. Well, mine will be keep your eyes on the northeast. Is that advance there a planned and coordinated combined arms uh, push? And if you want to have a listen back on what I mean by combined arms for those people of a former armour background who have arrived late to the party and you know who you are, uh, please listen back on Twitter Space or the podcast later. Um, or was it an opportunistic push born of good intelligence to suggest that the that the that the Russian forces there were very weak and uh, and were not able to put up with um, with an armoured advance. But yeah, keep an eye on the Kharkiv front. Thank you, Dom. Francis Turnley, would you like the final words? Well, I just wanted to focus on a very, very light story that's been taking Ukrainian social media by storm. And indeed, somebody actually sent it to me um, privately. Uh, and then we've now since covered the story as of some other news outlets. And it's about... Um, a, a, a chimpanzee on loose in Kharkiv. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, um, but effectively escaped escaped the zoo in Kharkiv um, and um, was on the loose and had to be coaxed back to the zoo after being offered a jacket and a warm hug by one of its uh, keepers. But it's a really... Um, I mean, you know, it's uh, in, 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 it pales in significance to almost everything else that we've discussed today. But it made me smile and it's clearly making a lot of Ukrainians smile and so if people feel the need after a a very depressing um, week of of analysis um, particularly uh, uh, reading about the military consequences of what's been going on then this is just a lighter story that I'd point people to Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.